Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelance and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm so fired up tonight because not only do I have my co-host and Hall of Famer Steve Flink with me on tonight, but we are also joined by one of our favorite commentators, Sam Gore. Sam is a veteran and versatile play-by-play commentator and studio host at ESPN and at Tennis Channel. Sam announces professional tennis year-round and has also been a play-by-play announcer of the NCAA Tennis Championships for the Tennis Channel. It is an absolute privilege for me to have this guest on with us tonight. Please welcome to the pod, Sam Gore. Sam, uh, thank you for for taking time tonight and talking tennis with us. I'm I'm honored. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm looking forward to this adventure. I feel like I'm on the hot seat. Oh yeah, we'll we'll take it easy on you, but but we'll see we'll see just how how good the conversation goes. So, but we'll we'll, we'll go easy on you. The first time guest here. Um, <laughs> I know the I know the three of us share a love for uh, for the sport of tennis, and you particularly college tennis. And you know, I mentioned in the intro you did the you announced the NCAA tennis championships down in Lake Nona. Um, I guess my curious just I'm curious just to how you fell in love with the sport. And, and what made you fall in love particularly with college tennis? Um, well, I started playing tennis when I was a little kid, probably about eight years old. And I had no family members that played tennis. I was at my great-grandmother's house watching Wimbledon with my grandfather. I walked in the room, he was watching Wimbledon, and it just captivated me. And so I basically uh, grabbed a friend of mine and said, we need to start playing tennis. And my dad got me a racket. We would go to the YMCA. We had two courts at the Y where I lived in North Carolina. We knew not, we had no idea what we were doing. And so we basically just kind of taught ourselves to play. And then that progressed to me taking it serious. And I played all the USTA junior events growing up and the Southern events and Um, I actually played competitively into my 30s until I was commentating so much tennis. I couldn't really work on my game as much anymore. But college tennis, um, I've just always been a big college sports fan. Uh, When I my my real job is I'm a, a full time employee at ESPN. So when I'm not doing tennis, as you mentioned, I'm doing college sports. And I just love the team aspect of this individual sport. Same thing with the Ryder Cup. Anytime I think you put individual athletes together in a team environment, it's like uh, going to Disney World. They just love it um, because it's so different from what you typically do growing up. But college tennis to me still maintains sort of that um, that just the, the energy, like you go to a college tennis match, especially if it's a big program and you might as well be at a basketball game. I mean, the <laughs> fans are screaming, the players are yelling after every point. It's just a high energy, captivating sport to watch. Sam, you mentioned, you know, Wimbledon captivated your attention as a kid. That's the same thing with you, Steve, right? When Wimbledon, how old were you when you got hooked? Yeah, it was. It, it is similar in a way. In, in, my, in my case, Sam, it was, a, it was my father took me out to Wimbledon. He'd, gone, he'd moved to London to go to work that year. Uh, my parents had been divorced a few years earlier. So he took me out there more as a cultural adventure. I mean, he loved tennis and he really wanted to see Wimbledon, but he had no idea that I would get hooked on the game as I did. So I was just about to turn 13 and we went out there and then I went several more days that 
that summer. And, and then I was back for the U.S. Nationals at Forest Hills at the end of the summer. And the rest is history in terms of where it led me and being determined to become a tennis supporter. And, and it all fell into place very nicely. But very similar, Sam, in the sense that Wimbledon was was the central theme. And, and what, what a way to get started with spectator tennis, because I had never been never seen it in person. I'd seen a few matches on television, but to have my match in person, first day in person at a tournament, you couldn't beat that. Wow. That, that is unbelievable. So you went to, you went to North Carolina, right? And North Carolina is a heck of a college team. I mean, a heck of a college team uh, currently. Yeah. Now, I know you were, you were doing more stuff in the media space, the journalism space during your time there. Were you really close to the team at that point or were, were your interests just more broader in sports in general? No, actually when I went to North Carolina, the guys on the team were a lot of them I competed against in the juniors. Um, I, I basically coming out of high school had a chance to go to Appalachian State University and play basketball and tennis or go to North Carolina and be given a chance to walk on. And I knew I had enough, I guess, self realization to know that I was not going to be a professional um, athlete I just wanted to talk about it and so majoring in journalism at that time when your classes were over you did a lot of internships and spent time in tv stations and media and so I, I got a job as a student assistant in the sports information department at North Carolina and I covered the team but I kept playing I mean I played just about you know every day when I was a student in Chapel Hill just not on the team. So your experiences there in college, I mean, I, it's, we, we see where you are now, but I'm always interested in the journey, right? So I want to kind of go from, from when you were in North Carolina to how you got your very first job, how you got involved at ESPN and tennis channel covering tennis. Well, I mean, I, I always say by the grace of God, because there's just probably a million other guys that could be doing what I'm doing, but I just happened to, be in the right place at the right time and be appreciative of the moment. But it, when I got out of North Carolina, I immediately got a job as a news and sports anchor in a station. And it took me about two years to realize that I didn't want to go to a station every day. I wanted to call events. But at that time, in that period of history, there were not a lot of you know, young 20, early 20 play-by-play -play commentators at the network level. That's different now, obviously, with the volume of the uh, online streaming and, and all the different cable networks. So I basically had to get out of broadcasting to get into it. So I got into the insurance business. A friend of my parents um, was an executive of a company that insured auto dealerships all over the country. So I took over the territory that he had when he was promoted. And it basically allowed me to have the freedom to start calling games on my own and make a living. Just as long as I met my numbers and covered my area, it was fine. So I saw an ad for um, the local NBC affiliate for the voice of the Seahawks. Their radio play-by-play -play guy had retired, the UNC Wilmington men's basketball team. Came down to Wilmington at that time I knew some of the guys on the team because I um, had gone to high school with a, a few of them where I lived. 
I did my audition, I got the job. And from that point on, you're in the pipeline. And so it, it, I was in basketball before I was in tennis, but how I got into tennis was through a neighbor of mine in Wilmington. I, I lived in an area of Wilmington and two of my neighbors were Cliff Drysdale and Bob Rosper, who was a legendary uh, television director, Rossi the son, not, not the golfer. And so, you know, obviously I would hit with Cliff and, and Rossi knew that I, I loved tennis and I wanted to announce it. So he had me stage manager, a few events that he did. And then one day out of the blue, I was on vacation with my family and he called and said, look, um, the ATP has this thing called the world feed and it goes out all over the world. They need a commentator. And I recommended you to do Canada and Cincinnati. Do you think you can do it? And I'm like, yes. So I started doing the world feed. Those events re went really well. The next year they offered me more. And then one of the people that worked on the world feed production went to work for ESPN where she eventually became a coordinating producer. And as soon as they had an opening at ESPN International, she called me, it allowed me to leave the insurance business and go to work for ESPN. At that time, I was only doing the international work with Jimmy Arias. You had a Spanish broadcast and an English broadcast. And we would go to Bristol and pretend to be at every Masters 1000, every major, out of Bristol. So at that time, also, ESPNU was created. So anyone who had any college experience and was somehow affiliated with ESPN, all of a sudden was being asked to help out with this new network. And so me with my college sports background, it was just a natural fit. And it just continued to evolve and snowball until finally Jamie Reynolds at, at ESPN um, plucked me over to the domestic side, uh, tennis channel, actually, I got to know the guys that started it right away, Steve Bellamy and Larry Myers. And my middle name is Bellamy. So I walked up to Steve one day in the press room at Indian Wells. And I said, Steve, I'm, I'm Sam Gore. I'm one of the world feed commentators. And I'd, I'd really love to um, get involved with your channel as soon as it's up and running. And he said, well, great. You know, tell me about yourself. I said, well, my middle name is Bellamy. And he said, there is no way your middle name is Bellamy. So I pulled out my driver's license and showed him. And that was kind of where it all started. And um, I just happened to get in with um, ESPN in, in college sports at the right time, as well as getting involved with um, Tennis Channel when they launched. So that, that's a very long answer probably to your question. But. No, no, that, that's great. No, that's great. Feed that dog, will you? Feed the dog. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Steve and I had Steve Weissman on and we asked him kind of the same question. How did his career journey start and everything? And his, his comment was the first job is the toughest job. And you mentioned like, once you get in, you're in the pipeline. So that's pretty much like the same thing. Um, Steve, it's pretty interesting to hear these people's journeys, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I want to hear a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're, we're going to go because I have you because I have you on. We kind of do uh, some quick hitters just to hear your thoughts, because we're coming down to the end of the year here. 
Um, it was a very odd year, but but so grateful that we got all this tennis in. And I want to start um, with your thoughts on Novak. And because Steve and I have talked about this um, several times. And, you know, there's two very different approaches to how it went. And, and I took the approach with Steve. I said, you know, it's almost like studying for the bar exam, right? You go through three years of law school. Now you study, you got two months to hit the bar exam and you're studying every day, every day, six, seven, eight hours, every day, every day. When I was studying for the bar exam, I just wanted the bar exam day to be there. So I didn't have to study anymore. That was going to be the easiest day. And I, and I, I was kind of related that to Steve with Novak. I'm like, he started with a blank slate. Now he's 27 for 27 in grand slam matches. He's got one more to do. I said, if Novak was going to lose at the U S open, it was going to be before the final because of that approach. I said, if he makes it to the final, all that hard work is done. He just has to play. There's no more practicing, no more preparation after just has to play. <laughs> the other side of that is you made it. Now it's staring you right in the face and you got all the pressure, all eyes on you. Right. And we saw what happened. Um, what's your take on what happened with Novak? Well, first of all, I, I don't think any of us can even pretend to understand the level of, of pressure or maybe even anxiety that the situation he was in. I mean, yes, you want to say it's what he's always dreamed of um, being in that situation. But other than Steffi Graf, there just hasn't been any player in the modern era that has come into that U.S. Open on the men's side with a chance to win a calendar slam under the current situation of the way the world has been this past year in the era that he has played in with the opportunity to pass Federer and Nadal atop the Grand Slam title list in that same major. And I, I don't want to say that he, he buckled under the pressure, but, I, you know, I think by the end of the tournament, there was a part of him that was just gone. And um, I do think if you talk to Novak, though, he wouldn't have traded the U.S. Open for the world because to me, Novak is one of those athletes because of the two big shadows he's kind of come up in where he just wants to be liked. He wants people to embrace him and love him. And when he feels that affirmation from fans, especially the New York fans, that's all he needed. And so I feel like he left New York with a smile on his face because he was able to appreciate what he had done. And then the fact that he ended his Grand Slams with the fans, you know, basically treating him better than they ever have. You sound like I'm talking to, to, to my co-host here because he has very similar thoughts to you, right, Steve? Yeah, I, I, I essentially agree with that. I, I, uh, I think it meant a lot to him, Sam, no doubt about that. I think that was, that was sort of a compensated. It, 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 he could at least console himself with that. Having said yeah. that, having said that, I believe that I'm not saying he would trade in and have a hostile crowd winning and take that over losing in front of a crowd that has seldom been more effusively in his favor. But I yeah. think that the most moving thing would have been if you were a Djokovic fan to see him be able to take advantage of the crowd to feed off their their fervor and play a great yeah. match, have them cheering him on their 
victory and pulling off a grand slam in New York. Obviously, that would have been the ideal scenario. But I, sure. I agree. It definitely it took some of the sting out of the loss to the, the feeling that he had, especially when you consider, Sam, and you've been there at a lot of these finals as I have. But you go back to a year like 2015 when he played Roger in the finals, I don't think I've ever seen. So, I mean, he might as well have been playing that match in Switzerland. The Federer crowds are <laughs> over. They're yeah. always uh, incredibly uh, passionate behind Roger. And, they, and that, that was a sense of the Boston Novak earlier in the year in the Wimbledon final. And they thought maybe he could do here. And they also thought maybe this might be Roger's life. It's not knowing what was ahead, that it, we were going to have something like the 2019 Wimbledon final. But I, I think, it was a it was I've never seen a crowd in New York that that I mean, it, it was apparent to me the moment he walked on the court, the ovation he got just walking out on the court. And I think they were yeah. so, so ready to get behind. Him. I think had broken in the second set, got one of those early break opportunities and managed to seal that set. I think that the atmosphere in there would have changed radically and there and it would have been much, much tougher psychologically. on Medvedev and something might have been released in Novak as a result. We'll never know. But I definitely agree with you about your point regarding his appreciation of the crowd. He did not take that for granted. And he reiterated in the press conference that he really meant what he'd said on the court and how much it had touched his heart. So from that standpoint, it would be a losing moment that he'll treasure. Maybe one of his most treasured moments in defeat to think back about what that crowd brought to him on, on that afternoon. The, the fascinating thing to me covering the event this year was how at the start of the tournament, the crowds were not for him. Yeah. They were pulling right. against him. And right. then all of a sudden it was, it was almost this shift where people realized we could be part of something incredibly special here. And then they started pulling for him. It, yeah. I mean, after the, first round he didn't do his thing you know like this and he just packed up his bag and left and and you know they were cheering for the other guy and then all of a sudden it was a huge turnaround a, a little bit like what happened with Medvedev a couple of years ago and you know yeah. but but Djokovic didn't really do anything to actually win the crowd back people just decided hey we're gonna pull for this guy and see if he wins it yeah no doubt about it it gradually picked up steam and yes, they were cheering Brooksby on as the American for sure. And you know, Brooksby wins that first set, blitz through the first set. They were excited. But even in that match against an American, even then, once Djokovic turned the corner and started to take control of that match, they were they were very supportive of him, even against the, the young American. And you're right. It grew. It grew from there. I mean, by the time he played Berrettini in the quarters, he had a lot of support and plenty of support against Sasha in the semis and and the final was just a, a moment in and of itself. So yeah. we're a remarkable tournament. Yeah. I want to stay, Sam, because you mentioned about the team part of tennis and Labor Cup um, has just exploded over the last several years. Obviously, we didn't have it last year because of the pandemic. I happened to be at the one in Chicago a few years back um, and it was an electric atmosphere. And I know this past this past event was a route, but score aside. Um, seeing team world, team Europe, I mean, the best players in the world play. I think it's just an extraordinary event. And I think we all think Rogers, we know Rogers going to be involved in the future. No doubt. I think he's going to be a, a sole captain or a co-captain at one part. Um, <laughs> what do you think about the event? 
I'm same with you. I love it. Uh, I love um, seeing those guys out of their element where they're battling each other. And now all of a sudden they're on the same team pulling for each other. That's a, what I wish more fans were able to see throughout the season, because on the men's tour, especially the, those guys get along with each other. I mean, when you go to the practice course at the U S open, they're players that could be playing against each other, practicing together. I mean, it's just, and then to see them team up like that, it's just fun. You know, it's just, I wish that, um, as it, well, I hope that as it continues to grow, it will get even more and more exposure because it, it's such a, a fun watch. What about adding women to the mix? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that would work as well. I mean, I, don't, I think that would be really, really cool. There'd be know, some world interesting team, mixed doubles matches. Huh, Steve? <laughs> world Team Tennis has shown us that that's a, a brilliant platform. So um, as it continues to, to grow, I could definitely see the, the women jumping in that and crowds would love it. I mean, it's, you know, be fantastic. Yeah, we were, Steve and I were joking before. I mean, you could have some crazy cool mixed doubles matches in that. Event. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to I want to kind of end with with college and with the pathway to the pros and we're seeing it, you know, more and more, you know, back in the 80s when John McEnroe turned 30, he was done, right? Everyone, I mean, he had that resurgence that one year, but basically you turned 30, you were you you were done on the pro tour. And we all mentioned like the guys like John Isner and Kevin Anderson, but you're seeing it more and more in a guy, I mean, especially right Cam Norrie. I mean, what a year this guy's having out of TCU. Um a guy in your your area in North Carolina, Will Blumberg. I think he was like yep. a 10-time All-American or something in singles yeah, and doubles. the most decorated like in history, yeah. Five years or something like that. Um, ben Shelton, University of Florida, son of Brian Shelton. We all know yep. Brian Pro. He Brian is the only coach who won a title on the women and men's side in college, the women in Georgia Tech, men in Florida. Um, we, we know your love of college tennis. How, how gung-ho are you uh, about college tennis being a pathway, a realistic pathway to doing pretty well on the pro tour going forward? Well, I, I will answer your question, but I, it reminded me, the highlight of my entire broadcast year in 2021 was the NCAA men's team final um, last spring when it came down to the last match Florida had never won the NCAA championship despite all the great players they produced. Um, and the coach's son, Ben Shelton, clinches the winning point for the dad and the university. And I'm just now able to talk about it without crying because it was just, you could not have written a script any better than the way the NCAAs ended this year. And so every time I have a chance to recognize the Sheltons and just the the classy way they did it, I, I do. But college tennis is different, and it is now a viable path to the pros. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, now you can play professional events. So these student athletes go out and play challengers and futures all summer and during the fall before their spring season. That the prize money is no longer as much of an issue because the way the NCAA works the prize money, any money that you earn for playing tennis, you can keep 
but it has to be expensed by yes. the end of the year. So therefore it allows you, if you're making some money playing tennis as a student athlete, to put that back into your game with, with training, you know, equipment, with trainers, with coaches, with first class airfare, whatever it may be, um, you can use that money to better your own game. So that's, that's a reason. Now with the NIL that's come out for the NCAA, student athletes are able to actually earn income from sponsors. If they are representing a brand or a company, they can be compensated. So for some players that felt like they may be risking losing money by staying in college, that's no longer as much of an issue. And the fact that the facilities on these college campuses are state of the art. I mean, you're never going to get the type of training for free that you will get at some of these major schools. So I think a lot of the players realize that going to college now, getting an education and preparing yourself for the tour, it's a pretty good deal. The careers in tennis now, as we all know, are getting older and older. And it's simply because of the nutrition and the physical part and just learning how to manage your body better than we ever have in history. So I think that college tennis probably now is at its peak in terms of being a pathway to the pros. And I, I, you know, I would probably guess that there's some people on tour now that decided not to go to college that maybe wish they had because it, it could have helped them be better professionals. Very, very good point. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, appreciate your, your insight on that. Um, I, I said I was going to end on college tennis, but we'll, we'll end with one more because uh, what's a tennis conversation uh, without the mention of Roger and Rafa? And I'll, I'll ask you both this one. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll start with the guest of honor first. Sam, um, put, you know, put your prediction hat on. What, what, do you, what do you see in store for Roger and Rafa in 2022? Oh, boy. That is, that is a tough one. That's one that I – my heart – wants to see them back out competing for majors for the next 20 years. <laughs> I, I just think what they've done for tennis and for sports in general is so unique. We've been so blessed to be in this era that we've been in, um, you know, for the last 15 years or so, but my head is telling me we're not going to see much more of them at the very top of the game. I just feel like that they, knowing that, the type of people they are. And I could be completely wrong. So if you play this at the end of the year and they're both back in the top 10 and, you know, I'm sorry. But as I analyze these guys' personality, what people fail to realize is they are both very dedicated and very passionate about their personal lives and their families. And so I do feel that they're both at a stage of life where I think Roger, you'll see him around tennis forever. Rafa, I'm not so sure about. I could see him raising a family and going fishing every day in Mallorca for the rest of his life, and he'd be bald and 20 pounds overweight. <laughs> but, the, but I don't think that they're going to be back very much in 2022 in the way they were. Um, I think that their interests off the court and at home will kind of start to pull at them a little more than that itch for competing, especially when their bodies aren't allowing them to do it. But again, 
could be completely wrong. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Steve, we'll, uh, we'll end with you. Yeah, I'm I, I, a little more optimistic than Sam is about Rafa. Uh, I mean, I'm not convinced because we don't that we didn't realize that that foot had been so bad that he'd been really having to deal with that going back to 05 until he told us last summer, this past summer. It's, yeah, unpredictable. It's, it's really hard for me to, to, to guess what that foot's going to be like when we see him in Melbourne, Australia for the Australian Open, trying to win his second title there. And that'll tell us a lot. And then we'll have to see what things look like over the clay court campaign. I think, you know, even this year when he was apparently having real issues with the foot, he still was awfully tough all the way through that circuit and up to the epic semi with Djokovic at Roland Garros. So I, I feel like there's a shot. If Rafa's feeling pretty good, if that foot isn't bothering too much, I still think he can be a real serious threat at Roland Garros. Roger, I see just the way Sam does. I just don't see it because he's 40. He's trying to come back from a third knee surgery here. It's He's been through so much these last few years. The family is a separate matter altogether, but just what he's had to go through with his body and, and aging. So I just feel like as gifted as he is, I, I, have a feeling this we're going to see him somewhere along the line in 2022. My guess is we will see him depart whether he plays the whole year out or not. But if he goes through anything like this year with the knee where he has to then stop again, I don't think he's going to be willing to keep enduring those kinds of setbacks for uh, again, I, the way he did this year. So I, I'm, I, I hope we can see some, some magic from him periodically, but I'm, I'm not optimistic about him with Rafa. There's a chance. All it's right. interesting. It's interesting, Steve. I'm, I don't want to, you know, make this longer than you want, but you saying something made me think of their approach to their um, injuries right now. I really feel like Roger, because of his age and coming back from the knee surgeries, he's more concerned about his quality of life yeah. until, you know, for the rest of his life. Whereas yep. Rafa is more concerned about, can I get back onto the tour? So I would, yeah, totally I agree. Yeah, totally agree, Sam, which is one of the reasons why I think, you know, that being his priority, that he, he has some luck and he can manage that foot because somehow he's managed to endure with the knees. The knees, we don't talk about that as much as we used to. But now, but now we're going to be looking for the foot. And I just feel like if it doesn't act up too badly, you're right. He still has this, this uh, laser-like focus on trying to get back to his top level. And I think somehow it's more of an obsession for him right now than it would be for Roger. And not that Roger wouldn't love to pull off one more major. But I, I, I agree. I agree with you about their, their respective priorities. Yeah, it's always scary to doubt greatness. And that's the, the, the best part about greatness. We'll see what happens, uh, you know, moving forward. Steve, always so much fun to have you on, uh, as always. Sam, from one big Roy Williams fan to another big Roy Williams fan. Go thanks, Heels. Uh, thanks. Go Jayhawks. I got to throw that in there. Go Heels. Go Jayhawks. That's fine. Um, thanks. Thanks so much for your time. This was a lot of fun, Sam. All right, guys. Anytime.